Can you hear that? That is the sweet sound of an offshore groundswell at the Shoreham Ship Pipes where I surf. Um, so I've come down a bit early because I'm quite keen. And I thought while I'm waiting, I'd record the intro to this episode. It seems quite fitting since I'm, I'm about to don a 5 mil Ulex wetsuit to get in the drink for this one. Picture the sea, like when people ask me what surfing Brighton, especially the ship pipes, is like in the winter. Have you seen the film The Road? The post-apocalyptic Cormac McCarthy um, adaptation. There's a scene in that where he has to swim out to a ship. Um, that's what I always kind of liken the ship pipes to on a day like today. Tempting, eh? But I'm looking forward to it. So I've got a little bit of time to kill. Thought I'd record this intro. So yeah, my name is Matt Bart. You listen to the Looking Sideways Action Sports Podcast, a show where I try and uncover the most interesting stories in action sports and other related endeavours. Thanks for making your way to my little corner of the internet to check this episode out. Hope you enjoy it. So this episode that you're about to listen to is a conversation between me, Liz and Jeff from Ulex, recorded live in front of an audience at the Finisterre store in London at the beginning of February 2024. Big thank you as ever to my friends at Finisterre for getting me involved with that one and to the very engaged and considerate audience um, who attended the event and asked such interesting questions at the end, which you're going to hear, and I promise I've overdubbed them this time. It's not another Kendall gate. We can't hear the questions. Sorry about that. Anyway, before we get into it, I thought it was worth... Oh, the locals are starting to arrive. Um, thought it was worth fully contextualising this episode, especially if you're a non-surfer and you've got no idea what Ulex is, and you've got no idea about the wider debate around neoprene and alternative materials such as geoprene and limestone neoprene, which is currently taking place in the surf industries and to a lesser extent, the swim and dive industries. I mean, having said all that, most surfers don't seem to give a shit either. So perhaps this will be helpful for, uh, for that constituency as well. So to try and keep this intro a manageable length, and I'm sorry, but it is a long one, this... I'm going to discuss this through the context of surfing, even if obviously materials like neoprene have endless applications and you probably use it countless times through the day in different scenarios without realising. So essentially, for simplicity's sake, wetsuits are made out of three things. Uh, Neoprene or petroleum-based chloroprene rubber, to give it its correct title, um, which, which is what the wetsuits we've all known and been using for years tend to be made out of. Then there's something that let's just call geoprene which is touted as the environmentally friendly version of neoprene. Uh, This is sometimes known by various different brand names. Um, Or I I would put something like limestone neoprene in this camp, which tends to be pushed by some of the major brands, Um, especially ones who have that whole environmental awareness and sustainable practice as a big part of their brand identity. Uh, And then thirdly, there's Ulex, which is plant-based it's made from rubber natural rubber from plants which is what Finisterre and Patagonia use and an increasing number of brands such as Need Essentials are also beginning to use so as has seemingly been apparent for a while chloroprene rubber petroleum-based neoprene um, is apparently extremely harmful to the environment and to people specifically the predominantly black and brown and low-income community who live close to the chloroprene-producing Denka plant in Louisiana, which has one of the highest rates of cancer in the States. Uh, And that is basically what the documentary The Big C is about. It's about the community in Louisiana who've been trying to draw attention to this for years, have been shut down by plant owners Denka, 
the local authorities in Louisiana, um, who even last week have been heaping the pressure on local activists and indeed journalists through some pretty dodgy uh, GDPR practices. Um, so that's basically, like I say, what The Big C, a documentary made by friends of the show, Lewis Arnold, Chris Nelson and Demi Taylor is about. I have covered that extensively on the podcast. So if you want to find out more about that, dig out the episode with Chris and Lewis from the end of 2022, or there's a few blogs on there. There's also an open thread on there. Um, or, or listen to the Amazing Water People podcast, which featured Chris and Lewis as well. So the film isn't out yet, but it's already made a big impact um, with some brands using it as an opportunity to um, switch other brands regrettably choosing to disparage the claims made in the film. Interestingly enough, SEMA, the surf industry body in the States, have also basically chosen to sort of disparage the film. Um, so there's some context. And since the episode with Chris and Lewis came out, I've been in touch with Liz from Ulex. And when I heard that they'd be in London in February 2024, we arranged to sit down and have a chat about this whole thing. Um, because you speak to people in surfing about Ulex, like I say, interestingly, this conversation doesn't particularly appear to have infiltrated the swim or dive communities. And people will always hit you with the received wisdom about Ulex. It's too expensive, it's not flexible enough, um, it's just as bad for the environment, that type of thing. So I thought I would speak to Liz and Jeff about this and just ask them, try and get the whole context, find out about the story behind Ulex, find out about the process, the supply chain, find out about their take on the issues raised by the big C. Um, and just try and generally expand this conversation that I started when I interviewed Chris and Lewis back at the end of 2022. So that's what we did. And that's what you're about to listen to. And I thought it was very interesting. So thank you, Liz and Jeff, for taking the time to do this with me. Uh, especially Jeff, because I did put Jeff in a bit of an awkward spot a couple of times with something the questions, some of the questions that I asked. But, you know, I wanted to ask some of the more pointed questions about this topic, about did the surf industry know about the impact of limestone neoprene? So we go into that in quite a lot of detail. As you're going to hear, Liz and Jeff very much know their petroleum chemistry IP Ulex wetsuit industry based onions. Um, so yeah, there you go. Um, I hope you enjoy it. I would very much like to understand what you think of it because you can do that. Um, by leaving me a comment on Substack or Instagram. Um, but in the meantime, here's me, Liz and Jeff. Nice one. Okay, so how yeah. are we? You guys good? Good. Yeah, doing great. Yeah. 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 So you've Absolutely. had a, quite a hectic schedule by the sounds of it. You've been in the UK for what, two weeks now? Yep. We're towards the end of our two weeks, we leave Saturday, but we've been here two weeks full of business meetings. Yeah. yeah. So how's that been? What have you been it's up to? It's been great. Um, you know, the UK uh, consumers, brands have always been really uh, supportive of Ulex, uh, really even from inception. And so it always holds a special place in our hearts. Right. Uh, because I think some of the earliest adopters uh, were Finisterre and companies from Europe. Yeah. Uh, and also in the UK. So, you know, um, glad to meet everyone in person. Um, and so, yeah, we're, we're happy to be here. Yeah. And Jeff, you said you've been on the road for two, you just said, well, we've been on the road for two years. Yeah, we've been on the road for two years. So we've been uh, building our supply chain. So we've been on the road predominantly in Asia. So we've lived for about 18 months in Vietnam. 
and about six months in various areas around Southeast Asia, Thailand, and actually quite a few months uh, in Europe. Okay, so in so London and France, working with various partners. So yeah, we're actually, this is the last leg of our two-year journey. The Odyssey. So we're yeah. back to California yeah. this weekend. So we've yeah. kind of visited family and friends a little bit yeah. in the last two years, but we're headed back this weekend, yeah. yeah. So, so basically, you can do be a digital nomad at any age, is yeah. what we're telling you. <laughs> that it's not just van life when you're in your 20s, that you can actually do it, you know? Yeah. In your age. 40s, like me. <laughs> <laughs> is that what you mean? Yeah. Yes, yes, that's what I mean. So what is the first thing you're going to do when you get back to the States before we get into the, the nitty-gritty? What are you... Well, we have been away from the water for a long time. Yeah. So we live in San Diego, so it'll be nice to get back to the beach, even though we're walking into horrendous storms. We're expecting, if you're looking at the news, you know, massive flooding and storms in San Diego. But right. notwithstanding, we'll take it. So it's nice yeah, to be back. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, and we're used to living on the coast. Yeah. And so having traveled for, you know, almost, what, 20 a little over two years. A little over two years, mostly in cities. Yeah. Right? And Ho Chi Minh, Bangkok. I mean, cities with, you know, high per count. Yeah. You know, with yeah, regards yeah. to the air quality. Yeah. So it sounds and, like you guys are yeah, ready for a little. Right. Yeah. And it's been hard to like run outdoors or, you know, do a lot of activity outdoors. Yeah. So it would be nice to be home. Yeah. In yeah. that regard. Well, let's start with um, what ULEX is, if that's all right. I think let's start with the absolute basics. Um yeah, how do you describe it? Like, what what is Ulex? Okay, well, I'm going to let Jeff because Jeff is uh, Mr. Ulex. He founded it, so I feel that that's an appropriate question for him. Thanks, baby. So, <laughs> so first of all, thanks, Liz. So we are on the founder of Ulex, and um, but Liz is the CEO of Ulex. So Liz is now driving the organization, and uh, kind of the new face of Ulex moving forward. But Ulex it was founded several years ago. That's all about basically taking petroleum-based products and replacing petroleum-based products with products that are plant-based, and in particular, natural rubber. So the basis of our business is natural rubber. In my past experience, I've been involved with natural rubber products for about three decades. So I started working in Southeast Asia with natural uh, rubber products back in the 1990s. And as I say, just kind of stuck in rubber. So I've been kind of working with that raw material for a number of years. And so we're really about knowing the difference in carbon emissions and carbon reduction from moving from petroleum products to plant-based products. We've been developing technologies with natural rubber for a lot of years, and it's just kind of interesting. So natural rubber is not a, a new novel material. Obviously, natural rubber has been around for many, many years, but as the industry in the 60s and the 70s and 80s started moving more and more to plastics, more and more products started moving away from natural rubber and plant-based materials to synthetic materials. The whole industry has just become disposable and so used to the ease of working with plastics that now as we're moving back to plant-based materials, it's like we're reteaching an industry, we're re retooling an industry on how to work with natural rubber. It's a little bit of a lost art. And since, as Liz pointed out, I've got a couple of years on the crowd, um, <laughs> I've been working with natural rubber for several decades, so it, it's kind of quite easy for us to go ahead and, and, uh, and do that. So it's really about, again, plant-based natural rubber materials, yeah. replacing petroleum. Uh, initially, we developed a replacement for neoprene, which is really the focus of this discussion this evening, evening but we also developed a plant-based replacement for spandex which is our next product 
um, and a number of other products to come. So right. that's the basis. Yeah. And a thing to keep in mind if you have like a take-home message for you know tonight is that Mother Nature makes the best polymers. Okay. It's the same in drugs, right? A lot of drug development, cancer drugs, came from plants. So it's not anything different, right? And so, I mean, Mother Nature is where we drew our, you know, inspiration, right? And so we're just returning to things that we've always done, okay? So what's old is new. So so you work across, obviously, many different industries. Obviously, you've mentioned neoprene, you've mentioned wetsuits. And I imagine for most people here, like the the knowledge of ULEX and the knowledge of this kind of petroleum-based shift, if you like, comes from the surf industry. I'm kind of willing to guess that's everyone in this room. But before we get into the details of that, obviously, you do, you do work across a number of different areas, right? You were saying you mentioned spandex is something that you that you guys have been a, a, a replacement for spandex. You were showing me like a, a denim. Yeah, an elastic denim. An elastic yeah. denim earlier. Um, so across all these different industries that you that you work in is is it, is it a consistent understanding of the need to replace this definitely not yeah. no i mean so i mean all industries are very different so one of the things that we've really loved about the surf industry is the surf industry immediately recognized the need to move away from some of these petroleum-based products some of the issues with toxicity of the product so uh, we could have been involved with a number of different industries. Uh, frankly, first of all, we wanted to thank Finisterre <laughs> for sponsoring this event and really adopting the ULEX technology. But our first real customer in this industry, and we're predominantly here to talk about surf, was Patagonia. And, uh, you know, we have Gabe here from Patagonia, who runs the European endeavors for Patagonia. So they were really the first to understand our technology and, and put their arms around it and recognize the need for change. So of any industry or just surf any industry. Right. So it was really it was really the surf industry that first looked at our technology, wrapped our wrapped their arms around yeah. ULEX, so to speak, in the sure. technology and invested in the technology. Yeah. Even as a small company, invested in a small company and really saw the reasons for change and kind of pushed that forward. So without companies like Patis, Patagonia and now Finisterre, as a small company, we really wouldn't be where we are. Yeah. So it's really the adoption of well-respected companies sure. in the space and initially in surf that's been the driver for our company. But I think to answer part of your question too, which is sort of adoption. Yeah. Right. Uh, and why haven't other surf brands adopted it versus you know an accessories company? So, for example, if you're an accessories brand, you don't have that same emotional attachment to your wetsuit that a surfer does. So it's a different type of audience, yeah. right? So you're not coming to like, you're not coming to me and going, don't take away my neoprene wetsuit. It keeps me warm. It does, you know, it functions, right? Yeah. People have, like you said, an emotional attachment right. to it. They for do. right or wrong, they right. do. Yeah. And so with regards to, you know, Athleta, for example, it makes a crossover body bag, right? Yeah. But no one's saying, bring me back my neoprene bag, yeah. right? It's just like this cool material that also works for them. Yeah. Right. Same thing with sports braces. It's not like people are so married to their knee brace. They're, they're, you know, they're not moaning brace. about the flexibility. Yeah, they're not worried about the flexibility yeah. or the thermal, you know, or whether or not it's going to be waterproof. All sure. these sort of things that basically a performance wetsuit has, you know, brings that sort of emotional attachment. Yeah. And then you also have people, you know, the wetsuit industry has also been very um, brand loyal. 
right, people like to stick to their brands. If you are, for example, an ambassador, right? So for example, Gabe was an ambassador for Quicksilver. He wore Quicksilver brands, yeah, right? But and you, you had you a few. Right. <laughs> right, and then Patagonia. But I mean, so you develop a loyalty to a brand as well. Yeah. And so then that brand then becomes your sort of, you know, guiding light with regards to the materials they choose, right? And so it's, it's, it's a different market. Yeah. Uh, and so, you know, the hurdles that we have in other wetsuit brand adoption of Ulex is different than in other industry yeah. with regards to accessories, sports medicine, uh, and that. So yeah, I think that was also part of your question. Yeah, yeah. No, well, we were chatting in the pub earlier, weren't we? And I, I found that really interesting because obviously my... You know, as a surfer and a swimmer as well, like you right. know, my my knowledge of it just comes from that. I just found it really interesting, like hearing the different conversations that you've been having with different manufacturers and engaging that different level of understanding of like, firstly the, the the scale of the problem, if you like, and also that emotional point that you just made, which we we talked about earlier. It's interesting because, as you rightly say, that's a big driver in surfing, isn't it? And we'll we'll, we'll get into that in terms of like how difficult it is to sort of persuade the old industry the whole industry to to switch i think but before we get into that i'm really interested in the like how it works like the supply chain you work with small holders so sure. could you could you give us a bit of an overview of 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 how the actual process works yeah absolutely so this is um this I'm sort of passionate about, um, not so, and I, this was just kind of funny because I actually, a little bit about myself, I spent two decades in uh, drugs. She's <laughs> in recovery. Uh, yeah. In biotech. Yeah, we've, and all, bi- we've all done that, yeah. Liz. In biotech and biopharma. So I'm actually a patent attorney okay. by training uh, and worked in a biotech company for, you know, a number of years, well, most of my career. Don't worry, Larry. And so moving into rubber, you know, it's a bit of a 180. But when you, th- so I never really thought about supply chains because we were basically, a, you know, in the clinic. And so you really don't think about supply chains. You think about secondary suppliers of, you know, certain materials that are crucial to you. So we developed, for example, you know, uh, membrane encapsulated cell therapy for type 1 diabetes. So you're interested in finding a second supplier should that first supplier you know, not work or function, or you can't get regulatory approval for it. But you don't think about like, oh, where the raw materials come from, you know, so I I didn't get in that granular level until we moved basically to Vietnam. And so I was born in Vietnam, returning to Vietnam was a a sort of a personal uh, thing as well. And so when we went there, Jeff and I basically, for what, six months, traveled all over Thailand and all over Vietnam with PEFC uh, representatives uh, that helped us in nooks and crannies, you know, visiting smallholders. And so what is a smallholder? Okay, a smallholder is really a farmer with a small plot of land, about three to five hectares in their backyard. Okay, so it's like waking up, going to your backyard and tapping your trees. Okay, it's like your garden. Okay, so imagine that 85% of all rubber produced in the world is by smallholders, okay? Not by big corporations, not by wealthy landowners, but basically a farmer, a smallholder, who has three to five hectares of land that they just wake up every morning and go to the back and tap, okay? Now, if you want certified natural rubber, you have to basically find a thousand of those farmers right and they have to and and to make it sort of a a business they have to live close to each other they have to be local you have to find regional and local problems right and so you have to group them then you have to find a private entity who's going to group them into a cooperative legalize it and then train them on sustainable forest management 
okay, that's kind of difficult. It's kind of complex. And we hadn't really appreciated that until we got on the floor and on the ground in Thailand and in Vietnam. Because the other certified plantations that we've worked with in Guatemala and Sri Lanka, they were large, owned by wealthy landowners or big corporations. Okay, so we didn't have the same issue. Here we actually almost created and helped develop it. So that was really an interesting, and we heard a lot of no's, too expensive, um, you know, and farmers, just so you know, in Vietnam and elsewhere, and most of Thailand as well, they're making about 2,000 to 4,000 US dollars a year, okay? So when you come, when we come with our Western standards, of like, oh, sustainable, right? Low CO2 emissions, all this, and you know, all this sort of green language. The former is like, really? I was like, what do I get for it, right? I'm worried about survivability. I'm not worried about sustainability. Okay, and rightfully so, right? And so what I would like to take, have you take away is the fact that when you leave here, that sustainability has to include the people, right? Supply chains are made of people. They're not made of equipment. They're made, not made of policies. They're not made of things, ESGs. They're made of people, okay? And at the very heart of where your natural rubber comes from are these smallholders who wake up every day in the middle of the night to tap their trees and to sell it for almost hardly anything, okay? And in the aggregate, it's 2,000 to 4,000 US dollars, right? And it's only nine months out of the year because the other half you can't tap, the other part of it you can't tap the tree because it's dry season, okay? So that's one, sustainability, okay? Survivability first, and then sustainability will come. But we have to take care of, you know, that's the social impact of it. You have to take care of the farmers first, okay? And with the other thing that we do with our supply chain is once we link that, link them up to the primary processor to make the rubber, the sale, of the certified natural rubber through ULEX, our own grade, we give basically over 50% of those profits back into the supply chain, especially for the smallholder, okay? Again, if you put money in their pockets, right, it's economic stability that you're gonna worry about first, right? I mean, we went to places whereby they didn't even pick up trash. They had no trash pickup, there was no plumbing, Okay, and so since part of that sustainability is, oh, you know, look at all this trash and plastic. I'm like, well, I don't even have services, right? And so let's wrap our heads around that, okay? So that's another thing to consider. And so that's what, uh, you know, I think Jeff and I are really proud of is this equitable ag program we have. Okay, we make our money from the foam, the Ulex foam that gets sold to make the Finisterre Patagonia wetsuits, right? And the, basically, the raw material itself, we can use most of that and give it back to the supply chain. Okay, again, social impact, social innovation, but it requires people to actually do something about it. Okay, that's something that's new that we're really proud of. So with regards to the rest of the supply chain, we basically then have a, an authorized network that we work with and contact. So basically, that's the rubber, okay? That rubber has to get made into a Ulex foam. And so there we've been over the years, Jeff and this is before I came along, has technology transfer, okay, it's a huge part of it. So we basically transferred our IP and our know-how to make the Ulex foam to ver different authorized manufacturers, okay. But up to now, there has really been one primary manufacturer, okay, and they controlled the pricing, they controlled access, okay. And so when we came to Southeast Asia, 
a part of our, one of our goals was how do we make this more accessible? Okay, how do we make it so that other brands can have access, smaller brands can have access to the Ulex foam? So we transferred our technology to a manufacturer who has basically headquarters both in Vietnam and in China to make the foam. Okay, then we connected them with finished goods providers or manufacturers, not just for wetsuits. So we work with nominated brands for wetsuits, but also accessories, boots, shoes, uh, booties, purses, yoga mats, whatever. Okay, and so we audit them and we provide. So basically what we have is we have a fully vertically integrated operation whereby we're in touch and on the ground with the plantation. Okay, we produce the rubber, we produce the foam, we work with um, brands with regards to making the finished goods, and then we work with the brands on the marketing. So that's pretty much the supply chain that we've set up in Southeast Asia. So Vietnam, Thailand, China. What are the IP kind of considerations with this? I'm sorry? What, what are the, like the IP, the intellectual property kind of implications of this? Where does this fit in? Yeah, I mean, that's interesting, right? So when I was in drugs, we never dealt with Southeast Asia. <laughs> I mean, we just didn't even go there. We didn't transfer our technology. It was just like this black zone, right? The closest we got was to Japan because uh, they have a big pharmaceutical industry there as well. And so it's interesting to come over and be like, oh, now we actually have to put it agreements in place. And so I think a lot of these countries have, you know, come to the point that they understand that you don't get investment unless you actually have rules. Yeah. And people believe those rules will actually stick or that they have a means to enforce them yeah. and that they have a means to litigate. And even if they don't have a means to litigate, you actually obey that contract. And so we've put a lot of contracts in place sure. uh, pretty much, and but reasonable contracts, right? In other words, um, and so, you know, when I did transaction law in biotech, you know, the restrictions and how to breach and all that was extremely complicated. Yeah. But I think when you're working with manufacturers who would make a very low margin, Right. And so I think, you know, having that sense of that sensitivity that I'm not talking to basically, you know, I'm talking to a mom and pop shop as well. Yeah. You know, many of these are family owned and they're making low margins. And so I need to make it such that, you know, they can get out of those contracts just as much as I can easily get out of the contracts. So, you know, for, not just for force du jour, but I mean, for other you know means as well. Yeah. And so I've learned a lot with regards to putting in agreements and seeing it from the perspective of the other party yeah sure uh, and so and that's the same goes with basically our technology transfer and RIP yeah and so one of the deals we have and you know Jeff can describe it more is with Decathlon we transferred basically our Ulex foam technology to Decathlon uh, and tra and basically spent what would you say a couple years couple years uh, but a full almost like yeah 18 months transferring that technology to a basically to a company that had never done that before had no expertise in natural rubber right so it takes a long time and it yeah. takes a lot of patience and we had basically a lesson plan a book plan you know weekly calls with regards to you know even how to work it where to buy it you know teaching them with a lot of education you know why certification why certify supply chains why does that matter why do you small hold i mean literally just the whole supply chain all over and explaining that to them as well as the technology and the formulation for actually doing it and so it is important uh and like jeff said he's had what over you know oh, 30 years yeah in uh, rubber know-how yeah right and so and that's you know becoming a lost art so you can't really continue 
to make ulex foam if people don't know how to make it yeah right and so we're hoping that you know with this new supply chain there's more access and the more access there is the more than we can actually onboard other manufacturers to provide even more access yeah it's really interesting the point you make about the phrase sustainability versus survivability did you say because i think especially like from our perspective it's always looked at from from the very western sort of consumer perspective isn't it you know there's not a lot of often a lot of thought about the impact at the other end of the chain really so it's really interesting to hear that like equity and like making sure that there's like this fair trade is is such a part of what you're doing you know especially given like the colonial sort of legacy of like rubber you know the history of of rubber and the history of you know it's like it's a pretty historically contentious topic isn't it you know so thailand prides themselves on not ever having had been a colonial sort of country yeah but vietnam of course right japan china indonesia into, yeah, yeah. And it was right in the French. And so it's very important, I think, not to come with a bias um, of Western thinking. So even though I'm Vietnamese and was born there, you know, and I have a lot of education and, you know, I, I people would probably even call me progressive. Um, but to come to my own sort of mother country and to sort of like push that down, yeah. it's just not right. Right. It just doesn't even it's it's beyond colonial. It's just not even respectful. Yeah. Right. I mean, and I respect the sovereignty of the people to make their own decisions. Right. And that's really important is that and that's why we're also building local and regional solutions because we want to keep the value within those countries. The raw material is theirs. Yeah. Right. Keep it there you know, help them basically make more value out of that, right? Instead of basically always shipping natural resources out of the country and having somebody else exploit and make more yeah, margins well, and, and money on and it, the, and the money, keep it there, right? And, so when you, the next time you see that made in Vietnam, it yeah. will truly, I would hope that it literally is made in Vietnam and it's made within this like very small region of a hundred mile radius, yeah. you know, where you have the raw material, go to the foam manufacturer, go to the finished goods, right? So that would be my ideal. Yeah. Well, on this topic, so one of the... I actually bumped into a friend earlier, Sir friend in Brighton. He's like, what are you up to? So I'm going to go and interview the, the Ulex people later. And he was like, ah, Ulex. You know, and he kind of came out with the, the stuff that you guys will have heard a million times. And one of the things that you hear a lot about Ulex is like, okay, well, how can you... What happens if you've got to scale it? Like, what happens if you've got to like... You know, let's say the industry adopts it. How are these small holdings going to cope? Like, what's the environment? How's it not going to be another palm oil? You know, like, so what? How do you respond to those kind of yeah? And points? I'm going to let Jeff answer this too. Uh, I mean, or uh, join in, but I think it, it's absolutely scalable. That would be a nice problem to have. I mean, for example, I think Jeff figured out for me if everyone in water sports converted neoprene to Ulex Natural Rubber, what would that be? That's so. Just as far as scale, so there's Mike about- Jeff. The whole water sports industry <laughs> is uses maybe 20,000 metric tons of material per annum for wetsuits, for dive suits, for triathlon suits, right. all in. The amount of natural rubber produced on a global basis is 15 million metric tons. So if we were to convert the entire water sports industry to natural rubber from neoprene, it would consume about less than 0.1% right. of the available rubber. So. Right. I mean, we love the water sports industry. We love the surf industry. It's built our country. But the amount of material that we would need to convert the, your entire industry is just a very small part right. of natural rubber. 
Um, so it's really, it's really not a factor. So yeah. the water sport industry is definitely moving the needle. Yeah, moving the needle away from neoprene to natural rubber and other areas. So we applaud the industry, but the impact on the, that the industry will have on sustainable practices yeah. or deforestation it's, it's minimal by the is, sounds is of it. negligible actually yeah, yeah. okay yeah. right interesting so it sounds like surfing was kind of at the vanguard of this really but from what you've said in terms of like your you know ulex and the ulex story and and you've mentioned patagonia having a like a a, a role of kind of legitimizing the idea of it essentially like early on um are you seeing a shift across the industry now more and more brands beginning to recognize the need to to transition if you like yeah so um yeah at this point in time so keep in mind when we first started out there was only one manufacturer that we worked with that in the wetsuit industry has monopolized the wet wetsuit industry for a number of years an excellent manufacturer but it was the only available manufacturer and because of that and that particular manufacturer had a franchise based on neoprene. So it wasn't necessarily in their best interest to be promoting the use of natural rubber in that industry. And so... That's very tactfully put. What's that? <laughs> That's very tactfully put. Tactfully put, yes. And naming no names. It. Yes. So, um, yeah, so the prices were high. Yeah. The improvements in the performance of the material were slow to come. Yeah. It was actually for that reason that we decided to establish our own supply chain. Sure. New plantations, new manufacturers, because we knew the product could be improved considerably, both from a thermal properties and warmth, elasticity and flexibility. Um, we knew we could bring the cost down. So when you look at the cost of neoprene versus natural rubber, and as far as the wetsuits, the cost of natural rubber is significantly below the cost of neoprene. So natural rubber wetsuits should always have been less expensive than neoprene wetsuits, okay? But they weren't. So we decided to really kind of move ahead and, and make these options available, which is why we went out and developed our own supply chain for that. Okay. So there's a big element of, you know, by the sounds of it, people with you know, existing interest, let's say, like a, like a, a status quo, the way that it's been done for a long time and not really wanting to shift it because that's working for them probably by on a margin and a profit basis. Yeah. What What's changing this conversation now then? Because when you, because, you know, the argument that you make and the argument that you hear, if we put it crudely, neoprene versus natural rubber is, you can't really argue with it. You know, people obviously make the point about which we'll get to i'm sure there's people have got questions about like flexibility this type of thing um but from a kind of ethical standpoint and you've just made a cost argument it's it's, it's a it, it seems hard to argue against this transition so why do you think it's, it's a two-part question really why 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 has the industry been so stubborn about this um, um, and do you think there is going to be a, a larger transition well yeah i think in most industries people human nature is reluctant to change. So it's very difficult to change notions, change products, and people get, we talked earlier about being emotionally involved, but people have loved neoprene for decades now, and especially where we are in England and Scotland, where yeah, before the use of neoprene, you couldn't surf in the winter, right? So people love neoprene. So to move away from that has been very difficult. Um, but there's been a lot, uh, certainly there's been a tipping point reached in the industry, not only surf, but other industries where people recognize that a lot of these petroleum-based materials 
are doing harm to the planet. Yeah. So that's the shift. And without a doubt, the recent information over the last few years about the dangers of neoprene from a toxic material yeah. and being a probably and likely carcinogenic material, yeah. as depicted by the EPDA, EPA in the United States, has also accelerated the shift. People are aware of, of uh, the film that's being produced, The Big C, and there's been a lot of showings, and Finister has been a part of showing uh, that as a, a, a pre, you know, preemptive. And so people are aware that change is happening. So we see a dramatic shift, even though it's been a slow adoption, which has been a little bit disappointing. Yeah. That maybe people aren't adopting this new technology or materials for the right reason. Um, we would say at this point in time that every major Wetsu company yeah. in the industry, I mean, without fail, every major Wetsu company is looking at natural rubber technology. Maybe not all Ulex. There's other competitors out there. Nam Leong is making materials. There's two or three other companies that have yeah. come up. We actually taught all those companies how to make natural rubber foam, but they all have excellent products. Yeah. So it's happening now. We expect over the next few years that the transition will happen quite rapidly. Yeah. And so um, even the uh, company that we mentioned earlier, Unnamed, who's been the monopoly in the industry for wetsuit production vertically integrated yeah they're rapidly shifting over to natural rubber material so yeah. you know we thank the surf industry for you know really you know recognizing the problems in the industry bringing those to light putting together the documentation the films the, uh to really bring it to the to the to the public side what's going on with that and it will you know it will continue to drift we're working in the sports medicine industry we're working with yoga mats working with the apparel industry so yep. it was really the surf industry that initiated this and now we see the carryover to all aspects of sporting goods and the apparel industry yeah but the other thing i think to keep in mind is you know because i'm a lawyer i see things from you know a slightly different lens as well is that regulations Right. I mean, they're sort of pushing that boundary. Right. The EU wants to be, you know, carbon neutral by 2050 yeah. and also just regards the Green Deal. And then now you have basically anti-green claim regulation that just passed. And then, of course, the European deforestation regulation that passed. And so, you know, not that I am 100 percent, you know, into EUDR, the uh, European deforestation regulation. I guess I think there's some you know, issues with that that are a bit um, colonial. Uh, if you will. But regardless, it does press the issue with regards sure. to sustainability yeah. and doing things, you know, in maybe a more environmentally and social, you know, yeah. way. Yeah, shifts like the Overton right, window, right. as we call right. it in the UK. And so yeah. even if you're kind of a slow adopter or yeah. resistant to change, laws kind of really, yeah, you yeah. know, shift yeah. your strategy. It's moving whether you like yeah. it or not. Yeah. You like it or not. Yeah. I mean, it's going to be enforced, yeah. right? And there are penalties. And so people don't like penalties, you know, whether or not you make a small margin or you make a big margin. Penalties yeah. are not good, sure. right? And so I think that also um, has helped yeah. uh, push, you know, that it's sort of... The general conversation. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So the, you mentioned the big C. And we've got Lewis here, obviously, who's um, the, the director of the film. Uh, I've covered that film a lot through my podcast. And um, a lot of, even me, like who's not really involved in it, it's just a journalist covering it. I've, I've had some pushback from the surf industry about, about the message of the film and kind of, you know, essentially saying that there's, it's, it's, it's not, like, you know, pressing the claims, like saying the claims are completely true. Um, from kind of vested interest in the, in the industry, really, you know. 
So um, I just wonder how long they've known about this. Like, have, 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 is this something that, that's been a bit of an open secret in the industry for, for a while? Like that this, that this kind of led this reluctance to change? Yeah, it's kind of a loaded question. You know, because there's some liabilities out there. I mean, there really is. Go ask him, Jeff. So when we first started developing the technology, it was not because of the uh, concern with toxicity or carcinogenicity of um, chlorine rubber. It was really because of the carbon footprint of the material. Yeah. Um, and we worked for a number of years to develop the technology. We first started learning about the issues with environmental racism, carcinogenicity. Back in uh, late 2017 and early 2018, and we had groups from that represented the communities in St. John's Parish in Louisiana, the U.S., start to reach out to us. They knew that we had developed an alternative to neoprene being used in the surf industry, and they reached out to let us know of the issues that they were having in their communities and wanted to know if we could kind of be their ambassador and help them. So at that point in time, uh, in early 2018, we started a campaign. We started reaching out to everyone in the industry. We, we reached out to all the major wetsuit companies and to the, the, the people in the supply chain, the manufacturers, the brands, let them know that was going on. So, you know, we became aware of it in 2018 and we made everyone in the industry aware of it in 2018. Yeah. So it's a little bit surprising to us that it's taken this long. Yeah for a lot of the brands and the people in the supply chain to react because it's a critical issue because yeah. the issue with the environmental racism in New Orleans is, the, I mean, it's, it's the largest incidence of the risk of cancer in the United States by many fold. I mean, literally that whole area in St. John's Parish is called Cancer Alley. Yeah. And if you Google Cancer Alley, the word neoprene comes up. They're synonymous in that area. So it's taken a while. It's taken what four, you know, four or five years yeah. for it to get to this point. And I think, frankly, a lot of the brands and the industry is aware of the expose, the documentary that's yeah. being produced, you know, with the big C. And unfortunately, quite often with corporations, it's, it becomes the uh, the shame and blame yeah. game, if you will. And they're aware of these issues coming out. They don't want to be caught you know, as being complicit in the yeah. industry. So we're seeing rapid change now. Some for, the, some for the right reason, some for the wrong reason, but nonetheless, we're seeing change. Yeah. Right. But it's not just Cancer Alley in that part of Laplace, you know, Reserve, Louisiana, right? Yeah. And so let's not forget that for as long as history, petrochemical plants have always taken advantage of people with low economic status. Yeah, well, you just right? told me a mind-blowing thing right? in the pub earlier. I mean, yeah, where you were saying so, that there's a, I'm sure yeah, you're going to you explain can look it, at, right? Basically, like, the EPA has what they call an environmental justice uh, screen or scan. You can go on there. And it will show you every petrochemical plant and the census data from the last U.S. census. Okay, And you can look at the demographics to see what that demographic looks like. And, I mean, it ain't white. And it ain't high income. I'm willing to bet. <laughs> and and so I mean, so it's not new. Yeah. Cancer Alley. The fact that it happens to be in a like over ninety percent black St. John's Parish. That's not new. I mean, that's like that's it's been there, right? I mean, uh, Danka. I'm sorry, not Danka. Dupont built that plant in 1990 in the nineties. 
right? So it's not new. And so these things, it's like, I guess, you know, from a, as a grassroots philanthropist, it, it, it does bug me a little bit when people say they don't know, because it's like, you just have to turn around. You just have to get on the 10 freeway in LA and drive past the oil wells. And kind of like, if you don't see that imagery, then you're just not looking very hard, yeah. you know, or you're not wanting to, because this is not new. It no. is not new. Well, I think that that's obviously it's easy to hide behind, isn't it? Like the that we didn't know kind of right. argument. And as consumers, let's be honest, we're all quite complicit in that as right. well, really. You know, Jeff, you asked me earlier what impact I thought the film was going to have. Um, and I think it's going to be really interesting because I think ultimately, like consumers will see the film and it's quite an argument. I mean, I've seen an, an early cut of Lewis's film and. I think it's to be quite unarguable, really. You know, it makes it makes this case pretty convincingly, and I, I imagine once the consumers sort of see that, and you, you would imagine that will be a shift, really. But I, I did want to ask you. I imagine a question that might come up, so I'm going to preempt it: is limestone neoprene? Because obviously, that's something that um, the industry very aggressively markets as as a green alternative to neoprene. So I wondered if you could perhaps. I mean, I don't really know what it is, you know, like I, like I'm, I'm a surfer, like I've, I've unwittingly, ignorantly bought those wetsuits before because I thought I was making like a, a, you know, an ethical choice, like, but from what I understand, it's, it perhaps isn't the case. So, and and that, that those, those products are marketed very heavily by the industry. Could you explain what that kind of is? So, um, all rubber, all materials are basically based on hydrocarbons. So we need carbon as the backbone for all materials that we manufacture. It's life. So historically, we've, we've used oil. We pull oil out of the ground. We take carbon out of the ground. It takes energy to take the carbon out of the ground. And then that carbon ends up in our atmosphere. Okay. So for many years, neoprene, we used petroleum. So we took the oil from the ground. We made an intermediate called naphtha. And then with the naphtha, we converted the naphtha to different plastics and synthetic rubber via very high energy processes. And so we would make a synthetic rubber from oil. And then that synthetic rubber was chlorinated, which gives it the magical properties to be chloroprene rubber. So that was the, the basis for years. But petroleum has not been the only source of carbon to make this synthetic rubber. So it's kind of interesting when we hear about kind of limestone as an environmental alternative. Limestone has been used for just about as long as petroleum. There's nothing new about using limestone. I think the surf industry, unfortunately, kind of looked at limestone and thought that they could make a nice environmental green marketing story by using limestone. And I think the imagery is that we're kind of collecting seashells off the beach and we're turning seashells into wetsuits. Yeah. But that's not well, I mean, what's it is, going. The it is the imagery. I mean, it's that's, literally that's the, the imagery. It's we're using materials you know, like it is. Like, you know, we're just picking up seashells, yeah. limestone, and we're making wetsuits out of it. Um, Wouldn't that be dredging, though? Yeah, so, so that's not good. So either. limestone we is, go around by hand. Well. Yeah. <laughs> so I mean, it's a, it's basically a mining operation. So limestone is a rock, calcium carbonate, and so it's a mining industry. So frankly, when you when you really think about it, mining is arguably more destructive to the environment 
than drilling for oil, where you're just dropping a drill bit in and pulling oil out from the ground. Mining and quarries is very destructive. So, and actually, there's a lot of data. As a matter of fact, you can look on our website. Liz published a great article about the difference in um, uh, carbon emissions from oil versus limestone. There's more energy uh, used and more carbon emissions to produce rubber or any material from limestone than there is from oil. So these large companies that produce synthetic rubber, sometimes they use oil, sometimes they use mining operations, whatever is convenient and based on their geography around the world. So limestone is, it's kind of interesting because limestone, the greenwashing of limestone is really how we, ULUX, got into this business. Right. Because many, many years ago, Patagonia looked at limestone being, and they, they basically called it bullshit. <laughs> they said this is, they just put out a blog, they said there's no such thing as green neoprene. Right. And limestone is not the answer. And we kind of looked at that and we had been developing, working in our labs, developing all kinds of foams from natural rubber. And we said, well, we actually think we can make a green neoprene. We developed some initial prototypes and went to Patagonia, met with Yvonne Chouinard, and, uh, which was quite a privilege. And he loved the idea, and we were kind of off to the races. But, yes, yeah, so limestone um, has been greenwashed. Um, the, the term geoprene, it doesn't come from the, the limestone industry or that industry. It's actually a term that was developed by one of the wetsu companies. They happened to name it geoprene, and the name stuck, um, and it's, it's gone forward. Okay. So, anyway, but... Um, they didn't get the trademark, though. Yeah, so they didn't get the trademark. It's available yes. for use. Yes. Yeah. So anyway, um, yeah, it's kind of a shame because it's not the answer. Actually, it's more, we believe, and the data will show it's more detrimental to the environment than, uh, than oil produced yeah. neoprene. Right. Okay. Well, I'm going to open it to the floor for questions. So um, does anyone have any questions? Um, man at the back. If, I'll, I'll repeat it on the mic so that's that Ju that's that. Julian so. yeah, Hi there, yeah. Um, thank you so much it's really interesting basically my question is obviously associated with the environmental benefits from going to a smallholder um, natural rubber plantations you're associating with that a series of um, environmental benefits as well and I'm wondering whether you've explored insetting any data coming from those smallholder plots to then transfer over to the brands. Either that be a carbon reduction in comparison to neoprene or something like that. So you're actually insetting a sort of carbon reduction into the material itself. So that might be quite hard to repeat. I'll, I'll, do, I'll overdub that one. <laughs> so, yeah, thanks, Julian. And I, I should also say that he's, I, I advise Julian's company as a board advisor, and Julian is the CEO of a company used to be called Salco, and uh, now Panda. Julian's also got a great hat on, Panda. I may say. So they're, they're, they're an ag-based business, and they're developing a material called Biopuff, which is uh, a bio-based insulation material to replace down and artificial insulation material. And so it's a great company, and thanks for coming. But a great question. So... Um, I would say that right now there's not a lot of data available from plantations on carbon reduction and and so for instance you're at you're at a point in time where you're actually looking at 
regenerative agriculture, okay? And so the plantation industry for rubber is actually far behind that. So as Liz talked about earlier, everybody wants sustainable rubber. From our standpoint, you can't have sustainable rubber until you have survivability on the plantation. So our focus is making sure that some of the economic benefit of our industry goes back to the smallholders. We want them to be able to feed their families, educate their families, and survive. Um, and then some of those monies need to be invested in education so they can learn to grow crops sustainably. So it's our goal to make survivability our mission, and that will enhance and help to grow sustainable rubber because only 3% of all the natural rubber in the world is grown sustainably and certified. And there's a huge demand for it. Right now with the EUDR, everything has to be traceable. So there's gonna be a real crunch for certified natural rubber. So we're trying to enhance that. So to get, to, let me just finish. So uh -huh. when you talk about regenerative natural rubber, so that's, you know, that's data, that's a far cry from where we are. So I'll be real honest, there's a lot of publications that talk about um, carbon emissions. So we know that from a very well-run, managed plantation and a certified plantation, there's actually sequestering of natural rubber. So for instance, if you were to harvest one kilogram of natural rubber, there's about a 25 kilogram or sequestering of carbon dioxide emissions or equivalents. So it's a pretty significant, but that's only on a well-managed plantation. If you have a plantation that has a history of deforestation, and as you know, have disturbed that ground, then with all those, you disturb the ground and deforest, then there's carbon emissions that totally wipes that out. So it's our goal to make sure that we have sustainable rubber plantations. And now that we have systems in place for traceability, we can begin to build the database for natural rubber. But uh, the industry sadly is not there yet, but we're on the forefront to promote that. And there's other things, like when you work with certified supply chains, particularly forest management, for example, uh, there's no use of nitrogen-based chemicals, right? And that's a huge part of CO2 emissions is nitrogen-based uh, chemicals. And so, I mean, there's little sort of like granular things when you work with FSC or PFC, whereby certain things are prohibited, and that in itself really cuts down on the CO2 uh, emissions. But it just, as Jeff said, um, but one thing though, and you know, and not, um, we only work with certified supply chains, but the deadline or the timeline for them that they put in the ground has also changed. And so there's, a, I have a bit of a, you know, at one time, for example, for FSC, it used to be 1994. That was the, the like the, you know, the, um, in the sand that said, you know, in other words, no deforestation after 1994. Well, they recently changed that to 2020. That's a huge change, right? And a lot of that was to basically satisfy loggers and other people that w could not get FSC certified. But that's a significant change, 1994. It's political. To 2020, right? And so I'm not, I mean, that's just factual, right? And so EUDR, guess what date their time in is? It's 2020. And so we're not talking like, you know, that a, that's a pretty soft requirement as far as, you know, deforestation is concerned. So I think, you know, meeting that and meeting, you know, getting certification for new plantations that meet that is going to be not cumbersome as it was. And there's 
opportunity in there too because again we're talking about farmers who basically you know are needing to make a living wage and so i see it from both perspectives i see it from the farmer perspective who does you know uh you know for their hard labor want a more of a premium if they're going to do that but i also see it from a policy in that political perspective where i'm like 1994 to 2020 i mean that's you know so i mean just uh, we're not here to discuss that but i'm just saying that you know shift yeah that it's you know just because it's certified doesn't necessarily mean that it's uh always you know germane yeah you were next i think latex allergies that's what i'm concerned about because i couldn't i couldn't wear a wetsuit that was made from latex so how do you get around that so when you say you couldn't wear a, a wetsuit made from latex, why is that? Uh, because you have type one latex allergy. Yeah. Okay. So have you been to an allergist or an immunologist? Oh yeah. Okay. Do you have you had skin patch tests? So do you know if you're allergic to the actual the latex or the different chemicals that are used to manufacture no, latex? latex. So okay. So so yeah. So there are yeah. So then okay. So let me. It's a complex issue. I'll try and break it down pretty simply. So. There, there are, Jeff. sorry, there are, <laughs> there are, there are a lot of people that believe they're allergic to natural rubber, but actually about 90% of the people that present with what they think are natural rubber allergies are actually allergies to the chemicals used to make rubber. And the chemical used to, to, to vulcanize natural rubber and synthetic rubber are pretty much the same. So a lot of people that have allergies have allergies to neoprene wetsuits and natural rubber wetsuits because the accelerators are sulfur-based accelerators. Those are the predominant cause of allergies. And they're actually, a, it's not a type one latex allergy, it's a type four chemical allergy. So that's one issue. The other issue is when things are made directly from latex, it's different than making them from solid rubber. So for instance, the issue with type one latex allergy dealt predominantly with medical gloves and condoms and catheters that are made directly from the liquid, from the latex. Latex is a liquid, all right? Natural rubber that are, we use for wetsuits is made from the solid. So when you take the liquid, there still is a fair amount of proteins that can be resident in the latex. And so what, for instance, when you make a glove, you take a former, you dip it, dip it in the latex, you dry it, you vulcanize it. It's quite easy for some of those proteins to transfer to your skin. However, when you make something like a wetsuit, you take that latex and you coagulate it in an acid bath. That coagulant in the acid bath actually denatures the proteins. Then on top of that, you take that rubber after you coagulate it, you grind it up, you grind it up in water, and then it goes into an oven at 120 degrees centigrade for 30 degrees that further denatures any protein. So for instance, if you look at FDA regulations and warning labels, there's warning labels associated with products that are made directly from latex, but not from solid rubber. So the wetsuits that we made are made from solid rubber, not latex. So strictly speaking, the, late, the wetsuit is not made from latex, it's made from solid rubber. There is no latex per se in the wetsuit. So we've been making wetsuits now for 10 years. We have had some incidences where people might have uh, had issues with allergies, but generally speaking, it's all been chemical allergies. We've not had even one incident 
of a type one latex allergy. And the allergy, I'll just say one more thing and I'll shut up. But so the allergies are very different. A type one latex allergy is like a bee sting. It's systemic. You can, you know, you can, your face would swell up, yeah, you'd be tearing. And you have, chemical allergies are different. They're local, it's like poison ivy. If you have a chemical allergy, it's in a specific area of your body. So did you have swelling of your, your type one latex allergy? in a room with it, I can smell okay. it straight in the okay. So we would right. never recommend, in good faith, that you use any product made from natural rubber latex. Even though it's made from solid rubber and it's safe, you never know, because you never know the amount of protein that it would take to el elicit an allergic reaction. So you should just, if you know you're type one latex allergic, you should just stay away from those materials. Pick period. another sport. <laughs> <laughs> Anyone else? Any more questions? Hello. Hi, so thank you for coming, first of all. Um, both of my questions are kind of related to like the material properties, so kind of two-pronged. Well, one, how does the raw material relate, like thermally, water resistance, all those kind of things, compared to the rubber that's used in the industry? And then number two, what's the end of life like for these materials? Because I know that that's a big part of sustainability is how you what was it, but also what you do with it after. So the first question is how do the properties of, of, of this material compare to the like neoprene essentially? Yeah. In terms of like th you said thermal, didn't you? So um and then what's the end of life for the for the right. for you like And so first before I mean Jeff can answer, you know, specifically with regards to that, but keep in mind that, you know, for Ulex, one of the things that you know, that sort of we're known for and we do is we innovate a renewable plant material to replace an existing common petroleum-based material, okay? And so it's kind of a one-for-one, one, right? So another, it should, it's a drop-in. In other words, if you're using a wetsuit, Ulex foam is equally warm, equally protective, right? Performs, has a, a, almost substantially identical physical properties, and we show you that. You can download those specs on our website, okay? So the performance is the same. Okay, so there's a lot of things that go into a wetsuit that most people don't talk about. And it's not just the foam, right? It's also the lamination. It's also the fabric that you use. It's also the design, right? Are you designing it properly? For example, the new wetsuit from Patagonia, right? The regulator, and people are saying it's a game changer. The foam is the same, right? The design changed. So they took all their years of repairing wetsuits and said, ah, oh, People are coming here, and these are the things that are wrong with a wetsuit that they keep on wanting repaired. Why don't we change the design to meet what the performance features of that? Because this is where you know the wear and the tear is using, and so they're using that, and they're using, and then also experimenting with different lining and different fabrics to achieve what some people think is like you know game changing, but it's not the foam, right? So it's the Ulex foam is the same, and so and you know we've had it tested by, uh, for example, like a major university comparing the Ulex foam to other uh, brands and other sort of neoprene and geoprene foams, and it performs just as well, if not better. So it's not, performance is not the issue for adoption. Uh, I think for the surf industry, it's more. Um, we don't get those questions, for example, with sports medicine. We don't get those questions in other industries and applications. 
it's mostly in the wetsuit industry. Do you think this is because this emotional thing that, you, that you're talking yeah, about? Yeah, I think this, it really is. There's this perception right. yeah. that like... I mean, and I talk to a lot of surfers, particularly my age or older, and, you know, I mean, they remember the Jack O'Neills. They remember, yeah. you know, and so it's like this culture that is such a part. And it's, you know, and God bless you surfers because it really is a cool culture, right? I mean, the surf shop, you know, bonded communities was a place where people went, you know, and they're, you know, they're prominent in almost every coastal city in the U.S., right? Everyone knows, like, for instance, if you go to Solana Beach, you go to San Diego, it's Mitch's Surf Shop, right? You just know, you know, and it was cool to have that sweatshirt or whatever, you know, or hat that said that, right? There's a sort of a loyalty. There's sort of a community built around that, and it's emotional. I get it, but that's not the facts, that's emotions, right? Jeff, you can answer the end of life. So from a strict engineering standpoint, and I'm a materials engineer, I mean, natural rubber, I know you are. So <laughs> that's, why I'm, that's why I'm up to my credentials. So, um, so I mean, uh, natural rubber and chloroprene rubber, synthetic rubber, from the two critical factors for a wetsuit, one is flexibility and one is warmth. So at this point in time, we can... We can make a material that's identical, perhaps superior, but at least identical in worth and flexibility. But that's not always been the case with Ulex. So in the beginning, we had one manufacturer. It happened to be the biggest neoprene manufacturer on the planet for wetsuits. So it wasn't in their best interest to put out a natural rubber wetsuit that was superior to neoprene in flexibility and warmth, okay? Or price point. And so for a number of years, Neoprene still stood here from a performance standpoint, and Ulex was on the bottom shelf, which is, we didn't like that. And that's really because we knew that natural rubber as a, as a raw material had much better properties that weren't being developed. That's why we decided to go out and develop our own supply chain of plantations, foam manufacturers, finished good manufacturers, because we knew that natural rubber could perform equal to or better than neoprene from at least the two critical factors, which is flexibility and warmth. And it's obvious, well, it's obvious to us anyway, from an environmental and a human health standpoint, that there was many benefits to using natural rubber over a neoprene. Anyone else? Go on, mate, you're on fire. <laughs> you, you mentioned a couple of competitors as well. Do you see in the future your technological IP or your trademark IP as being more critical to your defensibility as a company as the sort of movement to plant-based neoprene's growth? Can you rephrase that question? Yeah, how, how important is your particular IP going to be if this becomes a wider shift is generally the question, yeah, isn't it? Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. Your, 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 right. your tech IP. Right. Yeah. So I think... I mean, and personally for myself and for Ulex, and speaking on for Ulex, but also personal myself, if you're going to have something truly innovative, okay, and it's better for the environment, and it has a social impact, you want it to be widely adopted. So if you have competitors, then you just have to up your game, right? But you want wide adoption, okay? Because you're not gonna change the environment if just certain premium brands adopt it. Right? Then you get associated with that, in many ways, with that premium brand. And sometimes that's, and, right? And for us, Patagonia and Finister have been great, okay? Great ethos, 
great brands, okay, care a lot about the environment and social impact of what they do. But it can't be that any not everyone can access and afford those wetsuits, right? And that's one of the reasons why we worked with Decathlon, okay? Decathlon does great R&D. They make great products, but it's a very entry-friendly price, okay? And it's accessible. They have 1800, over 1,800 stores worldwide, right? And so that in and itself, right? And so um, Decathlon makes about 1 million wetsuits, okay? About 10 million wetsuits are made per annum. Decathlon makes 10%, okay? One day, in the next couple of years, every single one of their wetsuits will be Ulex, okay? So that means that basically, you you know, so you can just go in and you can just see Ulex on the shelf of a Decathlon store, and you won't even know any better because there's not another option there, right? And for example, for us, for example, we were talking about um, earlier at the bar, <laughs> yeah, is that like oh, when you I move? Was free. Yeah. Let's be clear about that. <laughs> when we move into like sports medicine, braces, knee sleeves, and things like that, where do you buy those? You buy those at like the pharmacy, right? So again, it's it's accessible because I'm not. I don't have to be a super jock. I don't have to be a surfer to wear Ulex. I can just all of a sudden, you know, twist my ankle and need basically, you know, an ankle brace. And so there's something about that accessibility that if you really want to change the world in which we live, you have to basically access all the entry points in which people can access your innovation. And that's really important to to us. So it, it's kind of interesting. When we first developed the technology, it was with Patagonia. And we're working with uh, Rose Barcario, who is the CEO of Patagonia. And uh, every other company we've ever developed a technology with wanted an exclusive. They wanted a global exclusive for five years or 10 years or whatever. And Rose says, no, we don't want an exclusive. We're developing this material because we want to change the industry. And if we're successful in commercializing this, we want to give it to the entire industry. So in this particular industry, we made a decision not to really patent these particular products. So Liz, you may know, is also an intellectual property attorney. So some technologies we choose to patent, others we choose to keep the know-how or the trade secrets under the table. And really the strength of the company is not necessarily technology, although we're really good at technology, but technology is easily copied. Once you figure it out, it may take years to figure it out, but only then it takes a few months to copy it. Okay, so our strength is in our trademark. So we really wanted to build our intellectual property is is really strongest with our trademark because we wanted Ulex to be a trusted brand. So so it's really not about the patentability. It's about the name. It's just almost the opposite of drug development. <laughs> so in drug development, I, you know, it's, I was very busy. It was thousands and thousands of patents, and so very different. So do you one more, Brooke? Yeah, just um, Jeff, you mentioned earlier that only three percent of natural rubber is grown sustainably. What does that mean? What is the threshold for sustainably in that? You know, at this point in time, the sustainability is. Is, is defined as certified. So right now there's two international organizations that have been placing standards for forest products. And so rubber is considered a forest product. And that's FSC, 
Forest Stewardship Council, and PEFC, which is also an international forestry organization. So in addition to certifying wood products or timber products, they also um, certify secondary products that come from the forest, and one of those is rubber. So as we look at EUDR, you know, the European Union uh, deforestation. Uh, deforestation Regulation, they're gonna require traceability. And so if you're going to manufacture or distribute a product in Europe, it must be traceable all the way back to the geo-coordinates. You're gonna have to be able to tell the supply chain exactly where that rubber was grown. And so by working with FSC or PEFC, a certified chain, it's almost by definition, we can trace that back. There's traceability within the supply chain. There's a chain of custody as defined from the plantation to the trader, to the rubber processor, to our foam manufacturer, to a wetsuit manufacturer, to the brand, all the way through the supply chain. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Same and as pulp and paper, basically. Yeah, so it's a, it's, a, it's a paper trail. And so so right, right now it's only 3%, but that's gonna grow rapidly, especially with the new regulations. Mm -hmm. And so really we just recognize that it's gonna place a burden on the smallholder. Which is yeah. so why we're trying to work with the small to support them. And so if you look at the certified map, so these are basically the two co-ops we work with. Um, and it's um, good or bad. Vietnam is a communist country. And so nobody owns land. It's all leased or given to you. And so all the, the government knows the exact coordinates. And so land use rights and whatnot are pretty easy to come by. So you can actually you know, continue to blow that up. But that is basically the land boundaries of every small holder in our co-op so we i mean so that's you know when you buy basically from our supply chain you'll have those coordinates you i mean it'll be anonymized so you won't know where mr and mrs doe actually really live but you'll know basically which small holder contributed uh to your suit and when fsc does the chain of custody they are on the ground in vietnam basically looking at those geo coordinates and looking at a mass balance right so yeah so Basically, yes. right. so for FSC and PFC, what you have to do, I have, a, like, for example, a huge Excel spreadsheet with all the coordinates, and that's part of the criteria. Um, so part of the criteria is basically demonstrating that you actually own the land, and if you don't own the land, you actually have land use rights. So that's all part of the documentation. So imagine collecting land use rights from a 1,000 smallholders, right? It gets to be pretty cumbersome. Uh, and some, you know, have inherited these. And so, you know, it it becomes a sort of a own, its own traceability, you know, uh, hurdle. But yeah, and so it's, you know, EUDR will require literally. And so it's one thing to buy it from like Guatemala, which is, you know, uh, one organization um, managing the whole thing. It's quite another to have a thousand, you know, smallholders and each of them. Uh, I think, do, I don't know if we were going to show that movie, Lawrence. We're going to show the, we're going to show the film after, are we, Larry, I think? Yeah, yeah, which kind of so, goes yeah, through the process, right. doesn't it? So, yeah, yeah, it's really, to... really illuminate, actually. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. Let's do it. Do it? Well, there we go. So, thank you to Liz and Jeff. That's That's so there you go. That was me, Liz and Jeff. Um, thanks again for this there. Thanks again to the audience. A lot of very interesting points raised. Love to know what people in the surf industry think. I know there's a lot of people in the surf industry that listen to this. Um, and I know there's a load of surfers that will probably listen to this based upon this topic. So let me know. You can comment at lookingsideways.substack.com 
or on my Instagram at we look sideways. Um, so let me know what you reckon. So housekeeping corner. And I wanted to, I basically been mulling over a question recently um, that I thought I'd talk about here because uh, it is the, the deepest weeds of looking sideways. That question is how important is intention when it comes to this entire conversation? Um, when it comes to any kind of ethical conversation, do ethics matter? Does moral substance matter or is it just about the outcome? Um, do things need to have, do ethical endeavours need to have substance to be effective or indeed relevant? So it's a big topic and I guess I started thinking about this because it's a key theme of the announcement of the documentary series I'm making about Patagonia's decision to give away their company and really the whole topic of Ulex chloroprene rubber, the entire conversation around the providence of the materials from which we make our wetsuits is in similar ballpark to me. It's partly inspired as well by an ongoing conversation I'm having with a friend who recently sent me a message that made me laugh but kind of summed it up. I feel it only illustrates to me that most of everything you read is absolute garbage and it's easy to pretend in the information space. And I do think this conversation is a good case in point. Because according to what you've just heard, the surf industry, including presumably loads of your, of like seemingly ethical surf brands, have known about this issue for years. But rather than take the step that would lead to substantive, substantive, I believe the word is change, i.e. change the provenance of the wetsuits, they're content to stick with the greenwashing stuff until they see which way the land lies. Um, I'm thinking, for example, of the huge household name surf brand who loudly trumpeted their B Corp credentials last year, but who can continue to have a range predominantly made up of neoprene and limestone neoprene. Or the other big name surf company that recently posted a reel of Sasha Jane Lowesome, presumably to demonstrate something, but who then at the first sign of any heat from the comment section just took it down in lieu of making any attempt to actually engage with the very issues at play. I guess I'm also thinking on a more local level as I've been posting on Instagram about how hard it is to get people to turn up to protest about the water issues in Brighton. This in perhaps the ultimate fair trade, tea drinking, Guardian reading, woke libtard town in the UK. I mean, take the WhatsApp group of middle-aged dry robbers that I'm a member of. I'm sure if you ask them, they consider themselves environmentally conscious and cognizant of the issues, yet two of them turned up at the protest the other day. Or taking it further afield, what about events? You know, if you've got a well-known event or festival which is kind of trading off an ethical stance, charging paying punters and brands but not paying speakers that attract said punters and brands, is that a problem? Or does the wider message they're delivering matter more than such considerations, even if they are marketing what they do is explicitly progressive? Basically, does it matter if the collars don't match the cuffs when it comes to these issues? I mean, I know what I think about this, it's probably obvious, um, it's quite a lot of what I discuss on Substack every now and again. But I just wonder, does anyone else actually care? Or are we happy to bob along at the surface without thinking too deeply about whether it's an issue or not? I mean, I'd really love to know what everyone thinks. Is Housekeeping Corner, after all, the place where I can pose such questions? I might even put it on an open thread. So let me know what you think. But that's it for this week. Got to say, the tide has dropped a bit, as has the size. Um, so we will see but it's definitely a bit cleaner than usual um, thanks for listening thanks to Finisair thanks to Jeff and Liz for being such great sports 
I'll be back next week with a brilliant interview with Eric Blem about his biography of Craig Kelly, which is called The Darkest White, so don't miss that one. Um, all right, nice one. Thank you.